0: Thursday, July 25th, 1912. I meet Major Hillier at the Salvation Army office, and she gives me a complete Salvationist dress. I start off with two kinds of cards with Major Hillier at about 11.30 p.m. We walk to Langham Place, feeling very queer. There are three girls on the street, street women. I observe them. Major Hillier and I take the bus to Piccadilly Circus. I notice several women in short skirts. Two looked under 14, hair down their back. They were all made up, more or less, and most were just smartly, but garishly. A good many, Tawdry. Only one or two shabby. Major Hillier had given me two kinds of cards when we came. When opportunity came, we offered these to the girls. They usually pretended not to see them. Sometimes they refused brusquely. Sometimes, shamefaced, a few took them. I'd been told how other investigators had betrayed themselves, so I was very careful trying to keep a fraction behind. And saying no more than when I could, half aside, Will you have one of my cards? When Major Hillier spoke, no girl seemed to listen. One who looked under 20 was small and prettily dressed, just like a gentlewoman, took the card, and when I asked if she would come, she said frankly, Oh, I'll give the card to a girl, a girl only 16. You don't look very much more than that yourself, I said. I'm 25, she answered. I've got a little girl of six. Her sunny little face. But the others, some were as hard as nails. Hillier showed me the girl who'd been on the street since she was 14. I asked the police to get her away. They were powerless to touch her. That is the one they called Mad Meg. She came to one of our midnight suppers and threw a plate at another woman. Stories. But I couldn't hear her low, unmodulated voice very well, and I couldn't listen. I looked and wondered. Hillier seemed to have no luck with anyone she spoke to. We followed some up the side streets, but came back. I was conscious of saying anything, but will you have one of my cards? So I suggested that Hillier should go one way, and I another. She agreed. I gave out one or two more cards as I walked along, and two refused them. Then I spoke to a little quiet woman, and she said, "'Not tonight.'" Then I looked up and saw a girl, 20 or so, dressed rather plainly and with a pleasant, dignified face. She was taller than most of them. I gave her a card, and she looked absently at my Salvation bonnet. I asked her if she had any friends. She said no, but quite indifferently. I can't remember what I said, but she was moving along in the throng when I said, "'Come up this side street a moment, will you?' She was just going to refuse and say, not tonight, again, when I said, look here, I wish you'd speak to me for two minutes. I am not used to this, and I shan't be here again. I live in the country. Just once out of all my life, I am here and able to speak to you. We walked up the side street a few yards, and she stood by. Where do you come from, I said. From Edinburgh, she answered, and I heard the pleasant Scot sound before she told me, slight but unmistakable. She said she couldn't remember her father or her mother, had never known them, was brought up in an institution anyhow. She came to London to go into service. Most of these girls will tell you grand stories about being a servant. Her mistress was unfair, unkind, the girl left. As long as I had money, the Christian Association took care of me. When I had no more, they said I must go. I was starving. And when I was starving, it wasn't any Christian Association that gave me food. It was a girl off the streets." She spoke of hating what she did. I asked her to come and talk to me about it. She said with a conspicuous lack of enthusiasm that she would. I wrote my name and Zoe's address where I was staying on the salvation card and gave it to the girl. Will you come in the morning? No, the afternoon, between two and three, she said. I said make it two. Well, two then. You will surely come. Have you money for the fair? I put my hand in my pocket. Oh, I have the money. I told her how to come. I was tired and dropping and said I had to go home. Hillier wouldn't let me get into the taxi till we had walked a good long way from that horrible scene. Good night. I got home and unlocked Zoe's door, and as I was bolting the door down, she came. Stopped, stared, and subsided in laughter on the stairs. But if I laughed, it was far, far from being Mary. Those faces... The extraordinary thing was that the next day when I told Zoe, she was seized by the deepest interest. I'd have her here, she said. We talked and planned. Zoe came up to me during the morning as I lay in bed half-dozing and said she'd been walking up and down in the room below, thinking hard about the girl and laying plans. Zoe and I sat waiting after luncheon, waiting from 2 to 3.30. No sign. A profound disappointment was upon both of us. "'Oh, if that girl only knew.'" She was afraid, I believe, of being sermonized. Sunday, July 28th, 1912. I find myself haunted still by that one and a half hours, bruised mentally by the sights and sounds of Coventry Street at 1230 a.m. I keep thinking, "'What is it that is so horrible and painful?' Then I remember... I practically knew it all before, so I don't know why at my age the scene should eat into my consciousness like an acid. I go with the new bits of my little sister and write until 1.30. Flora reads the nation aloud to me. We go out and tie up an old pear tree on the wall blown down by the wind. Then I go and dig in the orchard and I'm quite happy forgetting all the horrors. Tea and back to work till 8.30. The maids are at church. Flora and I laugh and talk and play patience, and then go back to the book until about 11 o'clock. And still, every now and then, comes this horrible sinking, and I think of Coventry Street. Welcome to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Kaler. Today's episode finds us in the streets of Edwardian London, where Elizabeth is doing undercover research for her latest novel. My Little Sister would explore the abduction of women into sex slavery. She had been working on that book for a while, but wanted to make sure her perspective in the novel was as close to fact as possible. So she went undercover one evening to observe prostitution rings at work and to talk to some of the prostitutes. She hoped to understand them better not only for her book, but as a way to start helping some of them escape that life. It did not go well. She borrowed a Salvation Army uniform, calling herself Mrs. Parks, and at midnight went walking along a street in London known for prostitution activity. Most of the women would not speak to her, and Elizabeth soon realized they distrusted the uniform she wore. She had to tell them she was undercover before anyone would even speak. Although her novel would end up being written about the abduction of middle-class girls, that night she spoke to a girl who had escaped an abusive situation only to believe prostitution was her only remaining option. Elizabeth gave her address where she was staying and urged the girl to come to her. She was determined to rescue the girl from this life. Here's an excerpt from her diary, entry the next day. Friday, July 26, 1912 I did not sleep. Last night's faces, accents, and implications keep me tossing, thinking, thinking. My girl doesn't come. I am deeply disappointed. Elizabeth ultimately decides she can't write the novel from the perspective of poverty leading to prostitution. Readers might pity a poor woman, but they wouldn't feel motivated to demand change. If she wanted her readers outraged, she believed the victims needed to be upper or middle class. Her hunch was right— her diary entries from June and July record some of her friend's reactions to reading the story when she gave them advanced copies. She said Flora Simmons was thrilled. Elizabeth had never seen her so excited. Florence Bell wrote Elizabeth that she was spellbound. And William Heinemann told her that he was very much impressed and needed to think the book over. The effect is rather overwhelming. The public response matched her friends. Book sales went viral in both America and England, selling almost 50,000 copies in the first few months. Readers were haunted by the tale, and they understood that the story was based on a true one. Legal reform in both countries had already been in debate, but Elizabeth's book heightened the conversations. Her story humanized the women who many had regarded before as simply prostitutes. Now those women had a name. Public efforts to address human trafficking felt strengthened by the novel. The U.S. had already passed the Mann Act in 1910, which made it a felony to transport women for prostitution or debauchery. But the focus on transporting didn't help solve the slavery issue as a whole. In December 1912, the British Parliament passed the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which allowed them to prosecute brothel owners, not just the men who used the brothel. But reform advocates were looking for further protections against slavery and for some cooperation among the nations. The International Congress on the White Slave Traffic had first met in 1899 to create some consensus on policy, and they held their fifth gathering in London in 1913. They proposed several things, hiring female police officers in large cities, raising the age of consent from 16 to 18, and using flogging as punishment for slave traffickers. There were also concerns expressed about how this talk of human trafficking would affect society. The Guardian newspaper, in their July 4, 1913 edition, carried this story headlined, A Warning Against Sensationalism. Mrs. Mandel Creighton said she felt afraid that all the present talk about the white slave traffic was having the effect of making young girls suspicious. It was the frightened young girl who often got in trouble, the sort of girl who thought that every man intended some evil to her. They should all be careful, too, that their endeavors did not go too far and become sensational, which would not only have the effect of what she had spoken, but would bring an inevitable reaction. In this episode, we're going to find out a little more about human trafficking through Dr. Paul Nepper. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Justice Studies at San Jose State University. Hello, Paul. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hello. Great to be here. Thanks.
0: So why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the audience here and the work that you do?
1: Right. So I am Paul Knepper, and I'm a professor in the Department of Justice Studies at San Jose University and visiting professor in the School of Criminal Sciences at the University of Lausanne. And I write the history of crime.
0: What on earth made you decide to specialize in something like that?
1: So when I was an undergraduate, I had a course in criminology, and the same semester I had a course in history. And the topic of the history course was about a, a group uh, of historians that have come to be known as the British Marxist historians. And they wrote about crime and kind of uh, emphasized a concept called social crime, which was the idea that certain kinds of crime can take on a political character and represent a form of social protest. So I've been mm-hmm. interested in that. I was interested in that then and have been interested in just the general idea of how much we can learn about crime by studying the past ever since.
0: Now, that definitely makes sense. Um, so today's episode, we're talking about human trafficking, uh, which has had a lot of names over the years. Can you just, first of all, give us a definition of human trafficking?
1: Well, um, in general terms, uh, you know, there's a reference to uh, a transnational form of crime, which involves coerced prostitution. But legally, it's always been a challenge to define because the activities may involve recruiting of a victim in one country, uh, arrangements to transport the victim through another country, and then prostitution in yet a third country. So it's been a challenge. Um, and um, how much the legal definition matters has always been a challenge as well. So in the 1920s, the League of Nations uh, organizes the first and probably the largest ever worldwide investigation of the topic, and the lead investigator, his name was Paul Kinsey, said it was very important to know the laws and each period of working. The field director for the project, Bascom Johnson, was who was a lawyer. Said, "Look, we don't go by what the local or even the national laws are. We have a kind of a a broader definition of trafficking, and that's what we're concerned with. And it's an extra legal concept. So, trafficking can mean a lot of different things."
0: Okay, so was the League of Nations meeting kind of a follow up to what had happened before? It was created with the International Congress on Human Trafficking. Yeah, so after the First World War, the League of
1: Nations agrees a charter and that charter includes Article 23C, which says that the League will take responsibility for enforcing those international agreements that were made before the war.
0: Okay, so um, then how is human trafficking changed over the years and what has stayed in the same from the nineteen hundreds till today.
1: Yeah, so the of course in the in the nineteenth century in the Victorian era it was known as the white slave trade. And that term originated because the early campaigners, many of whom were kind of pioneering feminists, uh, wanted to emphasize the gravity of the situation. And so they compared it to the African slave trade by using that phrase. So the idea was that African slave trade had been outlawed in the British Empire early in the, earlier in the 19th century. And by saying the white slave trade, what they were saying is that the victimization of women was as serious and as
2: big of a problem as the trade in uh, black Africans. So it was meant to be with part of Victorian melodramatic language as well, in which workers and women
1: were described as slaves to to, uh, try to emphasize the difficulty of their lives to an indifferent uh, government. And then when the League of Nations convenes its first convention on the issue in 1921, uh, the convention adopts the language of traffic and women. And it really invents trafficking as a kind of international crime that we know today because that article, the original article, included also a reference to drugs. So now we have the idea that you can traffic women, traffic drugs, traffic firearms, traffic body parts. So we have the language of trafficking now.
0: Okay. So, what are some of the groups over the years that have been targeted for trafficking?
1: Well, in in myth, these are, are, are European women or American women who are snatched off the streets. Um, in reality, the majority of women come from the Southern Hemisphere. uh, And uh, so the the language of of white slave trade, of course, doesn't apply. And this is one reason why reformers wanted to change it in the 1920s, to be inclusive of women throughout the world who were being caught up in the sex trade.
0: So we're not going to see a whole lot of law enforcement in the the novel that Elizabeth wrote, but what are some different ways that law enforcement has addressed this problem over the last hundred years? So uh, from the beginning uh,
2: of the the white slave um, trade, or or historians
1: typically refer to it as a panic or a scare, uh, there are calls for greater cooperation between countries in combating uh, the traffic and eliminate, and particularly for police to cooperate. Um, police have been uh, reluctant to prosecute uh, in many cases because of the complexity of the situation, and um, in some cases they've been singled out by the campaigning organizations as being corrupt and a big and a part of a bigger problem. So, the morals police in a number of countries are notorious for being corrupted uh, by the brothel keepers and uh, the people who operate the sex industry. One of the interesting things, though, about the white slave trade and trafficking is that over the decades, one of the largest groups uh, involved in policing it are private groups. These are inspectors who are hired by uh, nonprofit organizations, as we would call them today, such as the Jewish uh, Protection Society for Girls and Women or American Social Hygiene Association, which had its own undercover investigators and would investigate uh, cases in different cities and bring them to the attention of public officials.
0: So in, um, in Elizabeth's novel um, called My Little Sister in the U.S., um, two sisters are tricked into slavery when they are sent to visit a relative that they hadn't met and in they're instead met by a trafficker. Is this a realistic depiction of how victims ended up in slavery then or even now?
1: Yeah, so this is a great example of what's been called the white slave traffic narrative. Uh, And that narrative involves some kind of deception on the part of the trafficker or a young woman who's lured uh, into uh, the the backseat of a car or given chocolates with drugs that make them um, sleeping and they can put them in the trunk of the car that kind of thing so it's certainly within that uh class of literature so this is not reality uh, a large part of the women who are trafficked are uh, have a very complicated relationships with the traffickers um many of whom have some tie to prostitution in the country where they're leaving um so it's not a it's not a realistic depiction. But that said, the literature, uh, such as this this particular book, was very important in framing uh, the response. So uh, a similar book was called uh, Human Bondage. It was read by John D. Rockefeller Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he put $5 million over about 20 years into combating human trafficking as a result of that book. He ordered copies and sent them to a variety of influential people. So that literature promoted um, a large part of the response to trafficking over the years.
0: Yeah, I, I talked about that earlier in the episode. I think the importance of what Elizabeth did was kind of humanize the women. So they went from being just these prostitutes to actually being human beings. And, uh, and that made a difference then in how people responded to the crisis. Um, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about this subject? Or did we just cover that? <laughs> well, uh,
1: well, to some extent, I mean, the, the biggest, um, the biggest misconception, uh, I think, is this idea of um, the image of uh a foreign trafficker that we have domestic girls and foreign men are coming in and snatching them off the streets. Um, in the 19th century this was snatching them from European cities or American cities and sending them off to South America. The road to Buenos Aires as it was called. And this uh, this white slave traffic narrative has really never gone away for the, you know, since the 19th century we've had it. And the most recent example I've seen is in uh, Black Widow starring Scarlett Johansson, where the film opens with her and her sister being trafficked in this industrial sized operation by this super criminal gang, uh, taking women uh, against their will and sending them off to a horrible fate.
0: We were talking a little bit before we started recording about um, William Stead. Can you just let our audience know about him and the work that he was doing? Sure. So in the 1880s, uh, there are reports in England about English girls being
1: confined against their will in a Brussels, a Brussels brothel. And um, there's a House of Lords investigation uh, and lots of uh, rumors about who's involved in this trade and the scale of it and so on. And this issue really takes off in in 1881, with a series of articles that William, T., uh, William Stead put into his paper, the Pall Mall Gazette. Uh, and one of the things he claimed was that the issue was being covered up by corrupt MPs who were part of the process. And uh, he said that a, a girl could be purchased for as little as five pounds on this sex market in London. And he did this uh, with a little girl that he called Lily. So as it turns out, Lily's mother didn't give consent and the father was never asked, instead was put into jail. Uh, But this only raised the issue and really made it an even bigger uh, social and political issue than it already was. And so he motivated a lot of vigilance societies that were organized. Uh, He paid for uh, a representative to attend um, first international meeting. Uh, and even his death when when he dies uh, with the sinking of the Titanic really motivates yet another generation of, of anti-traffic campaigners.
0: Yeah, and that's actually a part of what motivated Elizabeth to pick her story back up. She'd started this novel several years back and had abandoned it at, for other projects. And then uh, when Stead died, who she was very good friends with, um, it motivated her to pick the story back up in 1912 and, and get it published. And um, yeah, their relationship goes goes way back. And so it, it makes sense that um, that the story happens when it does following his death on the Titanic. Question number nine was, My Little Sister was made into a film starring Evelyn Nesbitt. As a teenage model and actress, Nesbitt was sexually assaulted by several men that were involved in managing her career. Does law enforcement consider episodes like this trafficking? Would that fit into the category of what we're discussing today?
1: So the short answer would be no. Uh, Law enforcement historically has been reluctant to get involved and there are actually very few trafficking cases um, that are prosecuted, uh, even in recent decades. Uh, and it do, it's, it's due to the, the complexity of the relationships between the people who are involved um, and the difficulty of prosecuting under legislation um, in the way that it's been written. Um, that said, um, that kind of episode was is, is part of a larger concern about the entertainment industry and victimization of women. So after the First World War, which is about to be a few years after uh, Elizabeth Robbins' novel comes out, there's a lot of concern
2: about theatrical agents luring women who want to be vaudeville performers, mm. or performers in cabarets and music halls. Um, to overseas
1: locations and then essentially forcing them into prostitution. And so um, a number of organizations are involved in this, uh, trying to prevent this. Uh, The League of Nations uh, gets involved. And so there is a, a longer historical connection between the entertainment industry in which women are victimized and situations like that. And obviously, as we've seen in recent years, it continues with
0: me too right well and the ill it is they often lead to crimes uh nesbitt's husband would go on to murder uh, the man that had been her predator so you know in a pretty high high scandal um if somebody's interested in studying this subject more what is the resource that you would most recommend to them
1: Yeah, so this is a this is a great uh, question, and I would say for anybody who's interested in understanding trafficking today, the historical part uh, is so is so important. I've been to professional conferences and academic conferences and listened to presentations about trafficking by people who know a lot about it in the contemporary world, but who have absolutely no knowledge of all of the history that has involved in this in this issue. And in particular, the the League of Nations funded two uh, worldwide investigations into trafficking. And there are uh, interviews uh, and uh, information that was collected and uh, networks that were documented. And all of this information um, is just being reinvented because uh, we've lost the sense of understanding our history.
0: Debates would continue and policies would continue to be adopted and rejected, but there is no doubt Elizabeth's book played a role in discussions. The novel would later be adapted into a play with the help of Elizabeth's friend Cecily Hamilton. Then, in 1919, the novel would be made into a silent film starring Evelyn Nesbitt. But that is a story for another podcast. On the next episode of the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast, Elizabeth helps us gain insight into FDR's CCC camps. The Civilian Conservation Camp was a program that allowed young men to send money home to their families during the Depression. Thank you for listening to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast, a creation and production of Brooksville Main Street, a nonprofit focused on economic redevelopment through historic preservation and placemaking. The podcast is made possible with the help of a generous grant from Florida Humanities and the brilliant minds of our guest experts like Dr. Nepper. Would you please consider following and rating the podcast? By following us, you'll be sure not to miss an episode. And rating is a super helpful way to help us spread the word and support all the hard work of the following people. Life Thomason of Odd Life Studios produce this content as well as editing, mixing, and mastering it. Tom and Patria Die opened Profound Revelation Studios in downtown allowing us to create this content right in the heart of Brooksville. The docents of Chinsegut Hill Historic Site and Andrea Reed generously provided research support and advice. Barry Mindel of DeBar Design created our lovely graphics. Alisa Babor of Roots Creative Co. designed an amazing website and social media. Randy Olson of Live Oak Theatre wrote and performed our theme song, Time is Whispering. Elizabeth Robbins' Diary and Letters are housed in the Special Collections in New York University's Fales Library. Those resources are quoted with the kind permission of Independent Age, a registered charity number 210-729. Find out more about them at www.independentage.org. Special thanks to Florida Humanities for assisting with the funding of the podcast, especially Lindsay Morrison, who believed in the project when it was just a spreadsheet and a dream from the little city of Brooksville and of course, Elizabeth Robbins, who lived such a fascinating life and documented it so well for us. It's an honor for me to executive produce, write and host this telling of her story.